Well, hi everybody. Father Alex here, host of the Godcast and also the vicar of St. Matthew's Church in Burnley and also the author of our Daily Bread from Argos to the Altar. Thanks for joining me for another podcast uh, that you can catch on all uh, social media networks. Today's interview is with Helen Joyce. Helen is uh, an activist uh, against trans rights issues and she's a former academic and journalists. So hopefully a thought-provoking Godcast podcast for us all to enjoy now. If you do enjoy it, please do subscribe by hitting the button in the right-hand corner and uh, do check out all the other interviews. There's over 130 interviews now with people from uh, church, from science, from entertainment, from music, in uh, sports, you name it. There's something for everybody. So I do hope you now enjoy this interview with Helen Joyce. So, Helen, it's uh, it's fabulous to welcome you to the Godcast today. How are you? All good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's, it's lovely to to get you on to the Godcast to have a, a conversation about that's for some people is very uncomfortable thing to talk about, and we'll get to that in a moment. Just perhaps for people who 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 don't know you, obviously you are pretty well known, but people who don't know you, just give us a bit a bit bit of background to your to your work, if you would, please, Helen. Sure, I'm not at the well-known sort of stage that I don't need an introduction, honestly. <laughs> so um, I'm a journalist and author. Uh, I was at The Economist since 2005. Before that, I used to be an academic. Um, at The Economist, I did a load of different jobs. Um, I went out to Brazil as a foreign correspondent, and my most recent job there was as Britain editor. But I left The Economist after writing a book about trans issues, which came out in 2021, a bit over two years ago. And now I work full time um, campaigning on issues to do with sex based rights, uh, writing about it in my own journalism in various freelance ways and working with a campaign group called Sex Matters, which seeks to have clarity on the meaning of sex in law, policy, everyday life. We'll get we'll get to some of that stuff in in a few minutes, Helen. I was just wondering whether you always felt uh, kind of uh, I don't know if called's the right word, but if you felt a vocation to to be a journalist, was that there from a young age? Absolutely not. No, I mean I uh, I wanted to be a ballet dancer when I was little, <laughs> and I actually went off to dance school after leaving school, and that didn't work out one way or another. But I did qualify as a dance teacher. And then I went back to my second interest, which was mathematics, and did a degree in maths and taught dancing in the evenings. Uh, I thought I was going to be an academic at that point. So I started university at 18 and um, I spent the next 11 years doing uh, an undergraduate, postgraduate, PhD, and then three years of postdoc uh, on the way to becoming an academic. And, you know, I mean, we could go, we could spend a half an hour talking about why I decided this, but I decided that academia wasn't the right thing for me and went into public understanding of science and maths instead. So I used to visit schools and write material for um, Cambridge University's website. That's where I was working at the time. And then I worked for the Royal Statistical Society, editing a popular magazine for them. Popular in the sense of not academic, not uh, meaning that it was on the shelf in WH Smith yeah. about applications of, of statistics. And from there, I applied for the job at The Economist because I was an Economist reader and saw a job ad. And I thought I'd get some freelance work, maybe writing about official statistics. Uh, to my great astonishment, they hired me to be the education correspondent. And that was in 2005. And I worked for them, as I say, until um, I think it was uh, April 2022. So about a year and a half ago, I went freelance. And that hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? Do, do you do you feel you made the right decision? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've thought a lot about how people make decisions and what regret means in the context of trans debate. And 
one of the things that you have to understand is that people rarely voice regret to themselves because, you know, we make many decisions in life and it's hard to move forward if you think you made the wrong decision. So people do tend to back rationalize their decisions. Uh, so, so with that caveat, which is for all sorts of issues, I knew as I was doing it, it was the right decision. I had found something that was taking up all my mental energy uh, that I, I really almost resented a day job that was one of the world's best day jobs and the day job that I had wanted more than any other and thought that I'd be doing until the end of my career. But it was taking time away from what I actually wanted to be thinking about. And that wasn't fair to me or indeed, of course, to The Economist. Yeah. So we left on very cordial terms. They tried to keep me and I told them it wasn't the right thing to do for me at this point. And uh, we're still good friends. And, you know, I go to book launches and things there. But yeah, it was completely the right decision. Yeah. It was scary. Yeah. But, uh, it was the right decision. Now, I must ask, because this is the Godcast, so it, so it needs to have some sort of religious connotation to it, and because I also think there's some links to what we're going to talk about as well. Um, was was uh, Did you have a religious upbringing, Helen? What was life like for you as a young girl in, in terms of faith and matters such as that? Sure. Um, so I don't know. I get told that I sound English by Irish people and Irish by English people, but hopefully <laughs> some trace of the fact that I'm actually Irish born and bred uh, is still audible in my voice. I'm the eldest of nine kids uh, in a large Irish Catholic family uh, with, I was brought up, I went to a convent school. Um, I would say I first lost my faith fairly early in my teens, came back to it and then lost it again. And, you know, for many decades now, I've been full-blown atheist. I really don't think any of it's true. That said, um, my uh, imagination, my vocabulary, my um, moral intuitions are very shaped by that upbringing and in particular by certain aspects of the New Testament. And I feel that um, I'm also a very, very strong believer in freedom of speech and freedom of belief. Uh, so I talk a lot to and on occasion work with people of faith of various different sorts of faiths. And I mean, one of the issues that does come up in the trans debate is that it does trample on certain religious freedoms for certain religions. So that's something that maybe I feel more strongly about than mm. uh, many, many other like English atheists in particular, I think, who are much more likely to have been brought up in a more secular society and schooling than I was. And I also um, I would say that something that I have got, it's, it's not that you can't have it if you're not brought up Catholic. I'm really not saying that but a sort of a reverence for children and for protecting children. The biblical language comes to me very naturally on that. So I often, often think to myself, um, uh, better that you tie a millstone around your neck and cast yourself into the sea than that you harm a hair on the head of one of these little children. And, and that's a strong guiding principle for me. And I hope, I think I would still have it if I hadn't been brought up Catholic, but the wording and the feeling of it for me is from my religious upbringing. It's really interesting hearing you just say those things. You know, I've, I've interviewed quite a few Roman Catholics and there seems to be a general theme that, you know, that once a Catholic, always a Catholic. And I, whilst I appreciate what you've said about being an atheist, there is there is kind of a theme running through that. Well, maybe there is still that a little bit of that there. I'm just in, interested to know quickly, Helen, what was it that, that uh, turned you to being an atheist? Was it was it the academia or was it the experience? Was it was it or was it a combination of, of something else? Not the experience. Um, I had left the Catholic Church before a lot of the people who were my generation and older left because of the child abuse scandal. So my parents would still have been religious long after I was, and I think they still believe in a sense. But I mean, you know, discovering what the Catholic Church had been doing in abusing children turned a whole 
you know, a whole nation away from that church as an institution, which of course it was in Ireland. And it's left a hole actually in interesting ways that are beyond the remit of this conversation. But I had already left at that point. So it wasn't because I, I was unhappy. I didn't actually experience any of that. My common school was actually quite a nice place and I loved our RE lessons. They were a great chance to talk about all sorts. And, um, you know, liberation theology was in the air at the time. We spent a lot of time talking about Southern Central America and what freedom meant. And it was completely acceptable to say if there were things you didn't believe or agree with. We talked about abortion, all sorts in our RE lessons, even though it was a Catholic convent school. No, it was just that I didn't believe it's true. I'm, I'm somebody, I don't understand when people say, what does that have to do with it? Like they see religion as a social phenomenon or as a practice. Um, I, I see that that's what they're saying, but it's, it's just not me. If I think it's not true, I don't believe it. That's what mm. I mean. I just don't think it's true. I don't think that's how the universe came to be. I don't yeah. believe in a life after death. I don't think Jesus died and rose for our sins or any of those things. I think it's really uh, quite refreshing though, and, and encouraging, I think, for, for to hear an atheist voice uh, speak about faith in, in a respectful way. You know, I think media quite often likes to portray atheists as, you know, really just wanting to uh, crush the those of faith, crush that movement completely and put it down to something of a bit of just a bit of a waste of time. And I think there are, you know, I've, again, I've, I've interviewed other atheists who are very similar. You know, they've got a great um, uh, self uh, evaluation of what faith or what it isn't, but also um, respectful of people who do have, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the reverse of you, perhaps, you know, I grew up without a faith and, and discovered one later in life. So, but we could, we could do a podcast on that, couldn't we? We could spend a few hours talking about that, but, but I do want to get to our uh, subject in hand. And, and um, you know, I suppose uh, I want to ask you first of all about matters of, of, of trans issues is that, you know, I'm a guy that's kind of come to faith, like I said, later in life. And and I've learned a lot of my thinking has come through experience. It's come through the things that I've observed or I've listened to or I've watched. And and it's led me to being, uh, you know, very much a liberal Christian, very much a, uh, somebody with an inclusive approach to everybody that uh, kind of just wants to say, well, you be who you want to be. That's fine. As, as long as it doesn't encroach on other people's lives. And, um, and so in terms of matters of gender and sexuality, um, what is it that, that grinds your gears particularly, Helen, if you could just explain that to us? Sure. And I mean, without the religious element of that, I would have been in exactly the same place. I also described myself as a liberal, and I still do, meaning in the sense of the 19th century, you know, other people don't have the right to tell you what to do with yourself. You're sovereign over yourself. Um but if you remember the two parts of the formulation, the classic formulation of liberalism, I think by John Stuart Mill, in which he says, your freedom to swing your fist stops where my nose begins. So the point which I didn't understand at first when I started to think about this, because like pretty much everybody in my political position, I came in with the, you know, live and let live. Everyone can think, of, you know, everyone knows themselves best. I didn't notice the bit where the nose begins. I just noticed the swinging of the fist. And I think that's probably where a lot of people listening would be as well, if they're on the liberal side of C of E or mm -hmm. of Christianity generally. So the point is that, um, we really are immutably two sexes and that has consequences for other people. You know, my sex has consequences for other people in communal situations. 
uh, not all communal situations. When I walk into a restaurant and sit down, it doesn't matter to anybody. But as soon as I go to the loo, if the loos are communal ones, it does matter. And if you think about the situations in which we pay attention or take note of what sex people are, we've got rid of all the ones where it shouldn't matter. Like we now allow women to vote. We allow women to go into the professions. We don't say that men can't be nurses. You know, we're left with only the situations where your sex matters to other people. So those are briefly situations where people um, are in embarrassing or potentially vulnerable positions. So toilets, changing rooms, uh, in more vulnerable, even more vulnerable situations like in rape crisis centers or domestic violence shelters, where it isn't even just a matter of who might see you naked or might come upon you while discussing very um, painful matters that are to do with sex, like women get raped by men. Um, but also just that people can be traumatized and a lot of women are traumatized by experiences they've had with men. And so it's been a long-standing principle of trauma-informed support for women who have been raped or sexually abused or have suffered domestic violence that those spaces are single sex they exclude men entirely that includes plumbers you know everybody they do, they just don't have men on the premises um, and then there's sports because there are physical differences between men and women and then there are some political sort of situations like um positive action we call them so all women shortlists and so on that are intended to rectify long-standing uh, discrimination or hardship that women face as opposed to men. So that's all we're left with in terms of recognizing sex in law, policy, everyday life. And in all of those situations, it's just not up to you to self-define your sex because it's other people can see what sex you are and it matters to other people. And that took me a little while to notice, funnily. And I think that's because a sort of what I'll call an unthinking liberalism rather than a principled liberalism a sort of anything goes, you do you, without thinking, well, what if anything goes means that I dress in a nappy and, you know, poop on the train and say that that's because I'm a baby? Or what if anything goes means that because I identify as a woman, that means I can go into, um, you know, a changing room and get totally naked because I think of my body as a woman's body. Like there's other people there. I mean, the four word version of what I've just spent four minutes saying is uh, other people have rights. Yeah. But you, but you, uh, so would you, so would you say that a man just can't be a woman? Yeah, absolutely. It just can't I mean, be. We know that. It, it's not possible. A man can identify as what he likes, but he can't insist that other people see him as that because that requires other people to give up rights that may be important to them and that in some circumstances are almost certain to be important to them. What what would your response to be to I don't know somebody who just came to you and said you know what I've got I've got male genitalia but I just don't feel right something's not right you know and I know of people in this situation oh I do too and I'm friends with some yeah and and they just say you know I just feel like I'm the wrong I'm in the wrong body you know yeah. what, what would you say to somebody like that how would you rationalize that you know because this does lead into me. When I've been thinking about talking to you, Helen, it does lead me into some of the challenges in the church around, you know, I'm sure you know of Jane Ozan, who, who speaks passionately yeah. about uh, conversion therapy. You know, what is what is the route forward for people like this then? So just so that your listeners are clear, Jane Ozan is lesbian, not trans identified. She's a woman who really tormented herself for years because of her evangelical upbringing, which led her to believe that her sexuality was evil. And who spent a long time trying to find pastors. I think she traveled the world even trying to find people to pray her out of being gay before she realized this was not possible. So in 
there's no sense in which that impacted on anybody else. Like that was just unfortunately Jane had been given the strong feeling that she, her sexuality was wrong. Now, of course, there are religious people who do believe that her sexuality is wrong, but we're not talking about that here. There's nobody that Jane being lesbian and wanting to have uh, only female partners impacts upon except herself and said female partners. And that's a question of, you know, the pair of them agreeing that they're each other's partners. That's not the same as thinking I have male genitalia. That means you're a man. Remember, that really does. There are only two sexes and people can't actually, as a matter of observable, concrete, uh, objective fact, change sex. So what you're talking about is somebody who is in every respect a man, but who feels like they are or were meant to be a woman. And there's so many assumptions sort of squashed into that question. Like one is what can they possibly mean that it feels like to be a woman? Anything that a man feels is a thing that a man feels. Like the feeling of thinking that you were meant to be a woman is an exclusively male experience. I can't feel that, no woman can. Um, so, and the same in reverse, of course, a woman who feels that she was meant to be a man, that's an exclusively female experience. So this person is going through a thing. There's no question about that. And I think, you know, that deserves a great deal of compassion, support and so on. And if in, you know, in private situations, in friendship groups, in situations where everybody consents, people seek to refer to that person as a woman, you know, that's fine. That's that's freedom of association. That's consent, et cetera, et cetera. What that person cannot do is use their subjective feeling that they are the sex that they objectively are not to impose themselves on people of that sex without those people's consent. So a man's feeling that he was meant to be a woman is not licensed for him to come into a space that only women are welcome. Yeah. I, I, I have a picture of two people who I know in my head who have both, um, are both trans and, Again, this comes into my narrative of learning through experience, and um, and and the Godcasts are out there as well. By the way, if anybody wants to follow them up with uh, Rachel Mann and Reverend Sarah Jones, and I listened to their stories, and I was profoundly moved by their stories, Helen. I was profoundly um, changed, I think, to to move away from a position of where you are is just no. You're absolutely right, but by meeting these two individuals, I. I I, I felt I, I needed to show some compassion and empathy. And I've also come to understand what they are living their lives as women and are are making a, a, what I would suggest is a, is, a, is a good impact on society. They're, they're very good faithful. People. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I yeah. do fully understand what, you know, so that's where the tension is. And I'm sure other people will hold that tension as well. What would your remark or comments be to that? So... Or we, we have these sorts of tensions all the time in all sorts of situations. You know, often people very strongly feel things that other people simply don't want to go along with because we live in a secular pluralistic society. So the framework of human rights, which I think is the right way to think about this, um, universal they're universal. That's the first thing about them, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Everybody has all the same rights. And some rights are absolute. So, for example, the right to be freed, free from torture. That's an absolute right. There's nothing that can balance torture. States must take all possible actions that they can to stop torture active, actively. Other rights are ones that are qualified that can be overridden in certain situations or they may clash. So a classic clash would be between one person's privacy and another person's free speech. 
Um, and we, you know, we prioritise free speech in some situations and privacy in others. And sometimes we go to court to decide whether it is in the public interest for a journalist to publish something that infringes upon somebody's privacy. And there's all sorts of legal tests and so on. So to the extent that a person is expressing themselves, that's their freedom of expression, human rights, uh, that they are associating with people who want to treat them in a certain way, that's their freedom of association. Uh, and so on those are those are human rights but to the extent that they are stopping other people from having their human rights which might be privacy or might be free their freedom of, of belief like i don't believe that a man can be a woman and that's my right to believe that even if other people believe that men can be women that's very like you know a muslim believes one thing an atheist believes another a christian believes a third we all have freedom of belief that doesn't mean we can impose our beliefs on each other it means it's messy sometimes in a secular pluralistic society. We have our principles. So what I would say for those people is, you know, I hear you, I hear what you're going through. Um, you know, I'm not gonna go around the place telling people what they should wear, for example, or how they should present themselves or how they should do their hair. That's their freedom of expression. It doesn't impinge upon me. If I don't want to look at them, I should not look at them. And by the way, I don't mind looking at them, I'm just saying. And, and, and so on and so forth, but their feeling cannot take away other people's rights. So as soon as that, man who identifies as a woman say insists on playing women's sports or insists on coming into a women's changing room they are impacting upon other people's rights and now we have a clash and that has to be um resolved in the same way as all other human rights clashes and and how do we resolve it i mean i, I kind of trying to think what people might be saying at the screen you know and, and one of the questions in my head is you know I, and I don't know if you have children, Helen. I don't want to personalize do, this too yeah. much but, no i do yeah yeah two boys, you know, but, yeah. It, but if, if one of your children came and said Mom, do you know what? I think I'm I'm non-binary, you know, uh, with all seriousness. And yeah, you yeah. Know, why are you smiling, Helen? What's what's making you smile there? Because I now realise why you um you didn't want to personalise it because I don't want to bring my children into it. I mean, it's yeah. just not very fair, you know. So but, let's let's move away from my kids and. Say, okay, well, if it was a, if it was a fr if it was a friend or something, you know, or yeah, it's a, you yeah. know, my mates, my son's my best, you know, you know, you you know the question. Yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. Well. Just because somebody is my child or some, just because somebody is your child doesn't mean that you have to go along with what they believe. I mean, as I said, I'm an atheist and my child might come and say to me, you know, I now believe in God. They can't make me believe in God. I'm not going to say to them, you know, you don't believe in God or no, I'm going to ban you from going to church or something like that. But I am going to say, oh, interesting, I don't. And I'm not coming to church with you and I'm not pretending I do. So, I, I mean, and, but then beyond that, suppose my child were to come to me and say that they believe something truly harmful, that they believe, you know, they've joined a cult or they've, they believe now that, um, you know, you don't need food to live, that you're one of those people who believes that you can just breathe air and drink water and, you know, you'll survive or something like that. It would be my duty as a parent to disabuse them of a false belief and to protect them from their beliefs. Now, I'm not saying a child coming and saying they're non-binary is that, but a child coming and saying, I hate my body, I wish to get surgery, I wish to take cross-sex hormones, et cetera, et cetera, is coming and saying something potentially dangerous. And there's an evidence base that those things are not good for people and that most people who don't go down that medicalized path change their mind if they're young. And it would be responsible of me as a parent to try to find a way to talk to my child about what the actual evidence base is and why I think that what they're doing is harmful and why I think that uh, they, they, they should wait and they should think again, depending on their age, of course, if we're talking about an adult child, it's another thing. 
So, are you? Would you say that uh, you know being trans is a is a is a lifestyle choice? Um, being trans is about twenty different things. It's an umbrella term, and so many different paths bring people to thinking of themselves as trans. I mean, even this word on its own is not very helpful because there's really like there's no commonality between a teenage girl who's gone through, you know, an autistic spectrum diagnosis, is now self is now cutting, has stopped eating, is starving herself. And I know people like this, I'm not not inventing this story, and has landed on transition as the answer to her body hatred. Like one of the women I know who went through full surgery, you know, had her ovaries and her his, had her had her womb removed and everything. Um, came out the other end just a few years later, uh, realised, and she's now detransitioned, she identifies as a woman again. She started that pathway because of her very severe eating disorder, which nearly killed her. And she's the, the very start of her trans journey was that she searched to see if it was possible to get your breasts removed without a cancer diagnosis. And that was driven by her desire to get rid of every bit of fat from her body. And then the um, therapist, the gender therapist said to her, the reason that you're, uh, you have an eating disorder is because you were meant to be a man you're a man in a woman's body and that's why you hate your fat that was total nonsense there is zero evidence that that can possibly be a thing and it led her to get herself sterilized as a very young person so what is the commonality between that person and a middle-aged man who has you know enjoyed dressing as a woman has felt it's very meaningful for him in private for quite a long time and now wishes to do so publicly what's the you know what's the commonality with the very little boys that used to be the main people that they saw at children's gender clinics who were highly highly effeminate and were shamed by their family and parents uh, for you know for being effeminate they were told not to be sissy and so on and so forth and that experience led them to identify as a girl because they thought if i was a girl i would be allowed to do these things these are three entirely separate phenomena that have literally zero in common entirely different ideologies so to say it's a lifestyle choice, like, I don't think people go, oh, what will I do today? But it's it's like religion, actually. There's a, so many different routes into people coming to and from a faith that to say, like, is it a lifestyle choice to be religious? Not really. People find their ways in in many different ways. And this is the same. Yeah. So where does your activis activism begin and end then? Is it just to stop uh, trans men using female toilets and uh, trans uh, women to enter... Uh, male sports or or is it more than that you know are you advocating that uh that an end to this procedure stops in in surgery for example um it's it's not really it's not really about trans it's about all of us so people often say you know what's the problem you know trans people are what 0.5 percent maximum of the population you know surely we can absorb them now straight away there's a there's a fallacy in there if 0.5 percent of men identify into women's sports you entirely destroy women's sports because they'll, they'll be really high performers compared with what they would have been in the men's sports but setting that aside it's not actually about trans issues it's about the fact that we do all have a sex and in some circumstances our sex matters it matters to our health like trans people get very poor health care because there's a, a very strong taboo on talking about their actual sex. I was at a talk the other day about um, women's pelvic floor issues. So by age 50, 60% of women have problems with their pelvic floor. And I mean, there are things that you can do, there's physio that you can do, but it's become almost impossible to offer this physio to trans men because you're not able to say this is a female problem, it's to do with the female pelvic floor. You know, I, I, one of the physios I know who does this work was reported to the, um, the regulatory body for physiotherapy for transphobia 
for talking to a trans man, that's a woman who identifies as a man, just about the fact that she's female. She didn't call this person she, she mm. used he, him, but she had to talk about female anatomy. So that's just one of the places where for all of us, it matters that we're clear about our sex. So it's simply that in situations where sex matters, it is your sex that matters, not your gender identity. Doesn't mean that people can't identify as trans. It isn't about who has surgery or whatever. It's about the fact that on occasion, I need people to recognize that I'm female and I need to be able to say if the people around me are not female. So if I go into a changing room and there's a male person there that I'm able to say, you're male, this place isn't for you, please leave. And that the people running that space will go along with that and understand that I'm right, that this space is for female people only. Yeah. And and um, a question about society, Helen, you're, you're an academic. Uh, you, know, I, you know, and I hope people aren't offended by what I'm going to say, but when I was a kid, I didn't really know of, any, of, of issues such as trans. It wasn't really something that was, you know, it, you might be there might be an off reference to somebody having a sex change or something but but yeah and you wouldn't know what that meant even yeah just wouldn't know what it it meant but yeah. but now there's lots of you know and and i suppose people might describe it as the woke karate there's lots of terms of references that you know particularly as a priest i have to be mindful of and and careful of language that i choose but also find myself sometimes in a place of of just ignorance and naivety and put my foot in it inadvertently what what is happening in society? Would you say to to bring us to where we are today to have all this going on at, at the same time? It's a big oh, question. It's I know. Such a big question. It really <laughs> is. I mean, I mean, lots of things is what I would say. I mean, it's a it's an overused phrase, but perfect storm. Like lots of things came together. I mean, I don't think that we can overlook the role of the gay rights campaigning bodies that ran out of anything to do and anything to fundraise for when they got gay marriage. So Stonewall really explicitly switched from being an LGB organisation to an LGBT organisation when gay marriage was passed because they knew that they'd otherwise have to close because nobody would donate to them anymore. They had got their big thing done. And this isn't to say that homophobia is over. It absolutely isn't. It's just that fundraising for big tickets, you know, get a legal change through is much easier than the ongoing grind of, you know, let's try and root homophobia out of local sporting associations or schools or whatever. And the same happened in America with the ACLU and HRC. They adopted gender um, gender self-ID, meaning the policy that your legal sex would be what you said it was, not your actual body. Uh, they, introduced, they, they adopted that for the same reason, um, because for, to have a new campaign when their first campaign was won. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, I think trends in academia going back more than half a century, what they call the postmodern turn, which is the idea that uh, there isn't an objective reality, that reality is entirely subjective. And obviously reality is like partially objective and partially subjective if you're not in this very strange queer theory, gender studies type milieu. Like we create social realities, but there is a there is a there there. Like there is something objective out there. And this, by the way, to bring it back to the religious theme is something that I feel strongly a commonality with American Catholics who are campaigning against gender self-ID. Like they talk about the sacredness of the body. And we, you know, as you know, as you know, they believe and many Christians believe that we are resurrected in our bodies. And that body is male or female, like male and female, he created them. So so for me, it's evolution that did that. But for the Catholics that I talk to in America, it's God that did that. And, and this is something profound. It's not a trivial thing. It's not a question of self-ID. It is a given and it is a God-given thing for those people. For me, it's evolution given. 
But anyway, there's a there there. There's a real there is a reality. But in a lot of academia, there's no reality anymore. It's all it's all social. It's all constructed the whole way down. And for those people saying that there is a given that your sex is a given and it cannot be changed is like oppression. It's like saying, you know, I can never fix slavery or something like that. And slavery really is a social reality, but our sex isn't. Our sex sex has existed on this earth for 1.2 billion years. Yeah. And no mammal has ever changed sex in the 300 million years that there yeah. have been mammals. I can see all the, can hear all the conservative evangelicals shouting in my ear. I just want to be clear, this isn't about same-sex attraction, is it? No, nothing to do with it. I mean, one of my sons is gay, in fact. I have two sons, one straight, one's gay. The organisation I work for, Sex Matters, uh, the barrister who whose idea it was in the first place, she's lesbian, she was Stonewall's second employee. I, I have no issue at all with sexual orientation, and I have no issue with other people identifying how they like. My concern is solely human rights, and it's everybody's human rights. And it is just a fact that everybody's human rights rely on, in certain situations, us all being able to see and to act upon other people's sex. I cannot use a public changing room unless I am sure that everybody in it is female, and if there's a male person there, I have to be able to say so. And that's just one example. And, and society seems to move ever so quickly, Helen, you know, casting your mind to the future 15, 20 years from now. Do you see this as a, a phase we have to negotiate or where, where do you see this kind of leading to in the future? Great question. Um, so if you're in a, a sort of a milieu where people think that everything I've said is very bigoted and that we should go for gender self-ID, you probably think everyone agrees with you. And this is the purpose of opinion polls, is to remind you that you and your friendship group and, you know, your intellectual milieu are not everybody. Opinion polls have never, ever said that a majority of people think that sex should be a matter of self-ID. If you ask the questions clearly enough that people understand what they're being asked, which is an issue, by the way, because the language is very confusing, majorities of pretty much every age group say that they don't think that men who identify as women should be allowed into women's spaces, they don't think they should be allowed into sports, they don't think that children should be told that sex is a spectrum or that it's possible to change sex, and they certainly don't think that children should be taught that their sex category is a matter of their tastes, interests, styles, self-presentation, and so on. That's actually a really backward opinion, but anyway, that's what they're being taught under the guise of trans ideology. So most people agree with me. But if you're in the sorts of situations like that you probably are in on occasion, you don't know that. You think that this is all a done deal and that only a few very backward people or very old people or indeed evangelical Christians or Muslims or Orthodox Jews believe what I'm saying. You know, we, we've done enough polling now that we know that this is the mainstream view. And the thing is that people mostly also say live and let live. They don't want to stop people dressing how they like or calling themselves what they like. They just don't want those people intruding upon other people's rights. And the further this goes, the more obvious it is that it does intrude on other people's rights. And the place that gets into the media the most on that is, um, is sport. Like every man who identifies into the women's category destroys that category. And also education. People really, really don't like their children being taught falsehoods about the nature of humanity. And every story like that, unfortunately, tarnishes not just um, trans people, and that's bad enough, but also the whole LGBT movement. People say, oh, LGBT gone mad. And then they say it's feminism's fault as well. And so if this keeps going, if we keep trying to push for something that most people disagree with and that is simply objectively false, we end up causing a backlash. And I'm afraid that backlash won't just be against trans people, which, again, is bad enough. 
It'll also be against gay and lesbian people, and it will be against all ideas of women. You see this with Viktor Orban, you see this Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. All these things just get lumped up into one liberalism gone mad, wokeism, it's all destroying the world. They, you know, they're trying to destroy our children and so on. That's what worries me, and that's what I want to stop, because I want people to be able to be themselves, do what they like, up to the point that swinging their fist hits somebody else's nose. So please stop hitting other people's noses, is what I would like to say. Been fascinating talking with you, Helen. What what um, what's been the personal cost to your activism, Helen? You know, I, I uh, as an inclusive priest, I'm I get uh, occasional emails and correspondence from people who think I'm going straight to the burning pit of fire. What 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 has the per- personal cost been to yourself? Um, I've been very fortunate in that I haven't lost work because of it. Uh, the organisation that I work for, Sex Matters, was founded, as I mentioned, by um, this particular lesbian barrister, but also her client, Maya Forstatter, who lost her job for simply saying that she didn't think self-ID was a good idea. And she had to spend four years fighting in the employment tribunal to get some compensation for that. I haven't been through anything like that. The Economist was very supportive, um, you know, very sane on it. I left anyway, but that's fine. Um, so I haven't lost work. I haven't lost many friends. I mean, honestly, when you're in my political position, the most likely thing people say to you is, I completely agree with you, but I don't dare say so. Mm. That's what I hear from nine out of 10 people. Uh, I've, I mean, a few people have stopped talking to me. And then there's the whole internet troll thing. And I don't know why people let it bother them. Just mute, mute, mute. I just, mm. if somebody says something rude about me, I never read anything they say again. Um, I've had some death threats um i have two police investigations underway one for um a fairly plausible death threat that is by a man who um, identifies as a woman and who has a previous severe conviction uh, for violence and then the other one is um a mob basically following me down the street and chanting obscenities at me after of all things an event to discuss human rights in british law um but i mean just move on you know so I mean and on the plus side I've had a great time meeting brilliant brave new people becoming part of a resurgence of feminist activism in this country which is incredibly impressive the grassroots activism on this and I've learned a lot more about gay culture than I used to know because I'm heterosexual myself and it wasn't something I particularly knew about Um, and my son is 17 the one I said was gay so you know it's nice that I know much more about his history as he's been growing up. Um, so, yeah, loads of positive things. Yeah. Helen, it's been great. And I, and I think there's been a, quite a lot in this 35, 40 minutes for people to listen to and unpick. And I hope people approach it with an open mind and, and not, will obviously come to their own opinion. Um, your book, uh, What Is a Woman Doesn't Really Need Plugging, because it's a bestseller. But just finish by plugging your book, Helen, where people can get it. Yes. So it's got two different titles, actually. Um, it was originally released as Trans When Ideology Meets Reality, and it's now called Trans, Gender Identity and the Battle for Women's Rights. So I've only written one book, and it started with the word trans in any version of it. That's the book. Uh, and the other place that people can, well, the other two places people can find me are on Twitter at hjoycegender, and my own website is thehelenjoyce.com. I write various things for various publications as well. Fabulous. Well, I've only written one book as well, and I've and that's been a joyous experience for me. So, oh, I hated it. Did you? No, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it, and it's just. I think it's the fact that it reaches lots of people and people that you don't know. It's it's all very well your mum telling you've written a lovely book, but it's not quite. Oh, the... that's um, that's that's not that's not loving writing a book. That's loving having written a book. I also love <laughs> okay, that. <of> course, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, lovely. Thank, thank you, Helen. And I hope people have found this to be of a good nature and uh, some intelligent conversation. And do check out uh, a lot more uh, Godcast interviews. But for now, Helen, thank you. Thank you for having me on.